Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. In January 2019, we launched the What Fuels You podcast, and since that time, I have had the honor of featuring and highlighting leaders and their incredible stories. Though I'm eager to continue sharing these stories with you, I want to make space for different and relevant content for this unique and challenging time. While we all navigate the COVID-19 pandemic together, on this podcast and the upcoming ones, I'll be having more focused conversations with leaders to help answer questions, get key insights, and share stories of inspiration around how they and their teams are adapting during this new reality. I hope you enjoy these episodes of the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Dwayne Clark. Dwayne is the CEO and founder of Aegis Living, an author, philanthropist, producer, playwright, longevity expert, husband, father, and grandfather. Dwayne was determined to create an alternative to the sad old folks home and has set new standards in the senior housing industry for over the last 23 years. In response to the COVID-19 crisis, Dwayne and his team quickly formed a virus council made up of physicians, virus trackers, psychologists, immunologists, gerontologists, and also hired an in-house researcher to inform the company's infection control strategy. The Clark Family Foundation also launched Seattle Seniors Strong, a $100,000 community match campaign that brings together some of Seattle and King County's most engaged companies and individuals to support homeless and homebound seniors during this pandemic. Thank you so much, Dwayne, for all of your hard work, all that you do. I'm blown away. I've always been blown away, but in researching you, um, wow, I'm trying to pack it all into an hour. Thank you for being here. I, I want to say baked potato right off the bat. You know. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious. I was telling Dwayne that we start rapid fire, and it's usually very easy questions like extrovert or introvert, you know, baked potato or mashed potato. And with mm-hmm. you, I want I want to squeeze in so much that I'm I'm sneaking in some real life questions into my rapid fire. So hopefully you're on point. I have my sweat uh, my sweat <laughs> helmet on here. I just mm-hmm. got back from a party. You look great. I just got back from a hike, and as I walked in to go to the shower, my wife said, oh, the water department has turned off the, the water for the next six hours. And I'm like, I have a podcast in 18 minutes. Oh. <laughs> You're so looking good. My COVID it's, it, outfit. It's your COVID outfit. Um, okay, so let's get right to it. What is the character trait that you are most proud of? Perseverance. If you could take your mom to dinner, who I know is very special to you and who has since passed on, what would you yeah. want to say to her? I think that's a tough one. You know, I think there's so Not many. Not rapid fire, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was ready for a big potato question. I think I the fact that, you know, hopefully I accomplished what you wanted me to accomplish. Yeah. Well, I'm sure plus, plus, plus on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, this is also probably hard to answer in, in a rapid fire, but what three habits would you say are most essential to your healthy lifestyle? Well, meditation, I would put number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think movement is critical, especially during this crisis. Um, you know, if you're having depression or anxiety or whatever, I, I normally work out three to four times a week, 30 to 40 minutes a week. Since this pandemic, I'm working out seven days a week, two hours a day. And so I, I just think movement is critical. And then, you know, if you look at my book, one of the things I tout in 30 Summers More is the first thing I do when I get up is chug. Um, 16 ounces of water before I go to the bathroom, before anything else, because it absolutely, you know, rubs your immune system up, gets your memory going, and detoxifies you. 
Got it. Yeah. I like those. I told you I bought the book. I haven't read it yet. And I have it on my bedside table. I got to read it. Um, so Mr. Fashionista, Mr. Fashion Guy, um, I know that you have your clothes custom made a lot, but who's uh, the fashion designer that most inspires you? Well, I have some friends that are fashion designer. I have my suits made by Isaiah. Um, and so Gianluca Isaiah is a good friend. Um, he lives in, in Capri and, and Nice uh, area. So he's, he's a good friend. Um, I like, I like, I like kind of the boutique guys, you know, um, and I think, you know, it's an interesting question because I think fashion's in trouble now and it's in trouble because people have been wearing Lululemons and, you know, <laughs> cargo shorts for the last three months. Yeah. And, and people are and liking outside. it. Yeah. And they're like, why, why do I need to put on a suit? Yeah. So and then talking to some of my friends in fashion, they have, they have the same concern. I think they're valid. Yeah. Well, maybe they'll come out with the kind of cool sweats. I'm sure they will. Yeah. What non-ageist project, because you've got so many going from your books and your uh, movies and your philanthropy, which project would you say you're most proud of? Oh, man, that's a super tough question. I know. Super beyond. I, you know, I think my book that I wrote a few years ago called My Mother, My Son, because it was autobiographical and, um, you know, it was a tribute to my, to my mom. But, it, uh, you know, in a, in a big way, I think it talks about the passion we have for the elderly and what we do. And that's being made into a Hollywood movie. In fact, I just interviewed, uh, I'm interviewing directors right now. And so uh, we're, who we're will play at, Who will play you and who will play? I have no idea. I, I just, you know, I mean, I have my favorites. Um, who I would love, you want to play if you had I, your dream? I, lo I love Mark Ruffalo, and I've talked oh, to him yeah. a couple of times. But I think I, I just love his range of acting. So who knows? I, I'm not I'm not as invested in that as I'm invested in. I hope this uh, movie really does a lot of good for people. I was talking to Maria Shriver last week, and she did Still Alice, mm -hmm. and you know, Still Alice did such a great job of teaching people about Alzheimer's and mm -hmm. the person locked to look inside that body. And that's that's the that's the benefit that I want this movie to have. Yeah, and I like the idea of the children's book also around Alzheimer's, just how to explain that. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's, and yeah. I just have memories of my dad going to the Klein Gallant home and like shaving his yeah. I would just kind of be there, and I wouldn't know how to handle it as a little girl. So that's a yeah. gift. And there was, you know, there was no books out for little kids. So mm -hmm. my book, it's called Saturdays with Gigi, um, I put out because, I, you know, I have grandchildren, and it's tough to explain why people do weird stuff, right? And, yeah. you know, they know this grandmother all, and all of a sudden one day she starts to, you know, like in the book, she burns the cookies and then she doesn't know that they're on fire. And, you know, so you, you have to explain this is what's going on in a way that doesn't scare children and, and helps coax them through it. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of your family, because I had a feeling you would maybe say your wife or your children, but um, who are you most inspired by or who's your role model? Do you have a role model? I have a lot of dead role models, so I don't know if that counts or not. They can so, be dead. Um, you know, I, 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 my mom grew up in India, and she was alive when Gandhi was alive. So she didn't really like Gandhi because my two of my uh, uncles were officers in the, you know, like a superintendent of police there. They would arrest Gandhi. Mm. And so my mom's like, oh, he's a bad man. I'm like, oh, he's not a bad man. He invented passive resistance. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So I think... I think he was a brilliant man in order to, you know, conduct social change. 
Yeah. And I mean, we, we need Gandhi's today. You know, we really need. We need and, Gandhi right now. Uh, yeah. And I think JFK is in the same vein. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was a man, you know, he, he didn't have the great, greatest moral uh, values, but he was a man that really, uh, really embraced change and mm -hmm. the civil rights movement and so on. So I think, I think he is phenomenal. Um, yeah. We name conference rooms after women of great prestigious in our corporate office. I loved office. that when I toured yeah. your office. I loved so much about yeah. your office. Well, you know, our, our main conference room is called Mother Teresa. And yeah. my mom was in the same city that she was and met Mother Teresa in the 30s. And so I've always been inspired by her and the work she's done for the poor and just the selflessness she has. So mm -hmm. those, would be my, those are the people I'd invite to dinner if I could. Yeah. That would be quite the dinner party. Um, what piece of advice do you find that you most often give your kids, especially like what kind of advice right now? Well, uh, or grandkids I, would say, even. I would say those would be different. Um, you know, I wrote a book called The Big Life that was actually a book for, of wisdom for my grandkids. Mm -hmm. and, and then it turned out at the coaxing of some of my CEO buddies to make it more public. And it's turned into a game now that creates conversation. So it comes with a, a pair of die and you roll the dice and, and it says, you know, turn to page 46. And then you're, you sit around the family table or when you're at the beach or go for a car ride or whatever, and you talk about what's on that page. And so, you know, so there's a hundred things in there of advice. Cause I, I wanted to leave something when I leave this planet for my grandchildren, that was more than wealth or my portrait, you know, I wanted to leave them mm -hmm. something that, you know, hey, this is going to help them when they're, you know, whether they have money or don't, whether they lose money or don't, that it's it's sustainable. And I, I always tell people, you know, I mentor kids and so on, you know, you have to be your own champion. You know, it's because if you're successful, if you're not, um, you always have to be your own champion. You always have to believe in you. You always have to, you know, and not in a narcissistic way, like certain presidents that we have, but in a way that, you know, you're really championing yourself and believing in yourself. And, you know, my mom always would distill things down in a very um, sensible way. And she would, you know, even though we were poor and so on, she'd go, yeah, hey, we're just like the Kennedys. Yeah. What do you mean? We're, just like like, we're Irish, they're Irish. Yeah. So she would just, you know, she would focus on the commonalities. They're Irish, we're Irish. They're Catholic, we're Catholic. Right. You know, they like to do family things. We like to do, they play football at picnics. We play football, you know. I was like, oh, yeah, we are. Well, why yeah. doesn't that beautiful blonde woman come sing me happy birthday yeah. on my birthday? You know? Did you know that you were poor when you were little? I've talked to people who didn't have money when they were little, and they were like, we didn't know because our parents kind of, you know, shielded us from it in a certain way. We didn't have perspective. I think, I think there were times I knew I was poor. Like my mom was a, was a cook in a restaurant, and she would bring home this, this little doggy bag with the poodle on it. It was really a doggy bag. And that she would pull food off other people's plates, you know, to give us dinner. And I just thought, man, this is the coolest thing. I'm yeah, getting, you know, I'm getting these great steaks. And yeah. you know, half, half the steak was gone, you know, because the bite marks were out of it. And, you know, it's left. This is great food, you know. Yeah. So I, and I got that, you know, probably till I was about 10 or 11 years old. I, I got that. I think as you get into junior high and you start to have this class distinction about hey, I wear I wear these who has jeans. what new things yeah. yeah I have this coat you know but my mom was different my mom wasn't very fiscally responsible and so she'd come home and 
you know, the, the lights would be turned off, but she'd go, look, I bought this new dress. What do you think? You know? <laughs> she, she would have been a Jay Jacobs, you know, fashionista <laughs> customer number one. Yeah. You and talked about your mom a lot. What about your dad? My dad was out of the picture. He's out of the my picture. Dad, yeah. My dad was pretty abusive physically and mentally. Uh, he left when I was about six or seven years old. He's, he and left that, when you were six or seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I probably between, he died in 2009, between the time I was six and the time I was 50, probably saw him five times. So not, oh, wow. not, not very inspiring. He, he was kind of like, uh, if I were to describe him, he would be the Marlboro man. Um, really tough cowboy, you know, very smart. He scored genius on the IQ test, um, but not a very authentic, principled, loving man. Mm -hmm. And did he ever um, say anything to you that that you needed to hear before he died? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a good question. I went and saw him when he was in the hospital about six months before he died. I took my son and my grandson, who was about two at the time. So this was, you know, eleven years ago, and. Uh, I was waiting for that. You know, you were waiting to say, because, you know, you think, God, what would I say if I, you know, he had cancer? And what would I say if these were my last words? He said all the wrong things. In fact, my mm -hmm. son said, Dad, I have to leave the room because I'm going to punch your father. Yeah. He wouldn't call him your grandfather. Yeah. And, and so, you know, he never really got it. And yeah. uh, I'm sorry to you, hear that. Yeah. And all you can do is really feel bad for those people and say yeah. a prayer for them and send them and, love. Yeah. And I, I remember, um, I took a very fancy car to see him and my son's like, why are we taking this car down? He was in Portland. We were in Seattle. He was at the VA hospital and I took a very expensive, fancy car to do that. And I kind of wanted to put it in his face. You know? Yeah. Be like, look at me and, now. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. No, thanks to yeah. you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't even, and I was waiting, you know, I was kind of tricking him into saying something about the car because he walked me up to the car. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even say anything about it. Yeah, he, wouldn't too even, much he, wouldn't even, he wouldn't even give me that. So too I just pride. said, yeah. I remember driving off and just saying, you know, I forgive you. I, that's, that's all I can do. Cause I don't think people, I never want to be one of those people that say, Oh, God, I'm this way. Cause I had a bad dad or I had a bad mom or I was poor. You I don't want to be the victim. Say, I don't want to be the victim, but I want to use that as rocket fuel to propel me to the next level. I, I remember having a conversation with Dr. Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you remember Dr. Dyer, but Wayne, you know, one of the most publicized guys on PBS um, has written, I think, 20 books. He died about three years ago. He, he was an incredible mentor to me. And I, I was talking to him one time and I said, God, I hate my father so bad. He goes, God, your dad's incredible. And I said, no, Wayne, no, he's, he's an asshole. I don't like him. You know, he's, he's a jerk. He, he left my family, deserted us. Never played child support. He goes, God, he's phenomenal. And, you know, I'm like, what are you trying to teach me? What, what is going on here? He said, are you a great dad? I said, yeah, I'm a phenomenal dad, you know. He's like, well, why do you think you're a great dad? I said, well, I just am. I just, it's part of my value system. He goes, well, how did you learn that? He goes, your dad taught you that. I said, no, he didn't. He didn't do any of those things. He goes, exactly. He taught Told you what not to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think that's so true that we learn in reverse from people, right? If you have a bad boss, you know, the, the worst bosses I've had in my life have taught me so many lessons because I'd yes. never be that kind of boss to my staff. Right? Yeah. This is amazing. I love that message. Um, so sometimes yeah. we learn in reverse.
Yeah. So you're 100% self-made. I love these stories. Um, when did you first like realize that you had ambition or realize that you wanted something special for your life? Well, you know, I grew up in Lewiston, Idaho. We had a, we had a family ranch in Idaho in, on the Salmon River. And when my mom left my dad when I was six or seven, we moved to the gigantic city of Lewiston, Idaho, which had a bustling population of 26,000 people. Yeah. I'd never been to a movie theater before. So, you know, for 35 cents, I could go see a movie theater in the 60s. So, I, you know, it was very exciting for me. And about the time I hit about 14, 15, I got disinterested in, in school. I became very interested in women and girls. And I, in Idaho, you could drive when you were 14. So I was, I was always industrious. I was always a very hard worker. I worked every, almost every day of my life, certainly every week of my life since I was seven years old. So I started working as a dishwasher in a restaurant my mom worked in when I was seven. And I mean, all, every year from the time I was seven. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I got to about 15, I was getting in more fights and skipping school. And I actually raced cars. And I was making, this is in the mid-70s, probably about $2,000 a month racing cars. And oh, I, became, wow. I became quite good at it. And so if you had a fast car and you had money, of course, all the girls wanted to be with you. So I'm like, why do I need school? I'm exactly. $2,000 a month. I got the prettiest girls in school. You know, I don't need this. And I, I was really a juvenile delinquent. I mean, I was a bad kid. Not bad like I would steal. So, but I'd get in a lot of fights and stuff. And so I went to this one powder puff football game. Um, and I saw all the rich kids there. And I'm like, man, you know, all the, all the girls that were from the best family were out there in their little powder puff uniforms. And I just had this visceral reaction to it. And I'm like, this is too pretty a picture for me. And so I went to the store, I bought two dozen eggs, and I started throwing eggs at the girls on the field. And there's like 200 people in the stands, and they're like, you little asshole, knock it off, you're a jerk, you know? And I wouldn't listen, right? So this, I hit this one guy's girlfriend, he came down, we got in a fight, and I kind of dispensed it to him, and I feel this tap on my shoulder, and it's this big guy, his name was Ryan Williams. He was six foot seven. He was the all-state tackle on the football team. And he was a Golden Glove boxer. And I'm like, oh, this is not going to be fun. So I took a swing at Ryan. And that's the last thing I remember. I mean, he probably popped me about 15 times. And I woke up. I was unconscious. And no one would help me. Nobody. Nobody would help me. The parents are looking at me like, you deserve that. You know? Yeah. And so I actually lived about two blocks from the football field. I crawled home bloody and beaten, ribs broken, nose broken. My mom looks at me in horror, like I just got ran over from her car. And I told her, hey, I have something to tell you. I haven't gone to school in the last six months. I've been racing cars, you know, being with girls. And I, th I think it's time for my life to change. And that changed my life, that, that moment. Um, and that, that's in my book, My Mother, My Son. Um, Ryan has since passed away, but his family has thanked me for writing that about him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, my mom put me in a private school. I went to a private school in Walla Walla, a private Catholic school. It totally changed my life. And, you know, I became class president. I was senior class representative. I played every sport. You know, I was in charge of the class trip. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I was on the debate team. So you realized that you had big visions, um, but I know you didn't graduate college, but you had hoped to. What happened to disrupt that? Well, I went to college. I got a scholarship to actually go to college. But you didn't finish, is what I read. I didn't, I, I didn't finish. So I went to college in Hawaii, went there for a year, didn't like living in Hawaii, came back, went to Gonzaga, 
um, and ran out of money. So I got through my sophomore year and, and went back to Walla Walla and started dating my old high school girlfriend. And she got pregnant and we got married. And so I was a father at 21. And, uh, and at 23, I was a father again at 23 and a half. Um, I was a single dad. And I decided at 23 that I would be the better father. So um, I started a national father's rights movement at the age of 23. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, we formed what was called the Coalition for Family Rights. I was all over the news, being interviewed by every television station. Our staff went on the Donahue show. I mean, and I was the first elected national director of the Father's Rights Organization at, at 23. That's Wrote incredible. The, yeah, you've had the, like nine lives. I mean, I've, seriously, <laughs> that's wrote the, wrote the joint custody guidelines, uh, wrote child support guidelines, um, and really changed so that uh, wrote joint custody legislation, changed it so fathers could get uh, custody. And you know, and so that was that was back in '82, mm -hmm. and so really. And then I won custody and my wife paid me child support, which in 1982 was unheard of. Unheard of. Yeah, totally unheard Un of. So, yeah. um, so at the time, so you're 23, you've got two kids. Yeah. What kind of ambitions did you have at that point? Because you talked about $2,000, women, cars, money, yeah. but I haven't really gotten from you that money was ever really your number one driver. It was more kind of what that brought. No, I was working for the state of Washington. I was actually working in the Department of Corrections. Yeah. And so that's that's where I was working. And I was, you know, I was doing all kinds of jobs. I was a tactical team leader. I, I was trained as a hostage negotiator, um, started wow. up a SWAT team. I mean, did a lot of crazy stuff. And so, um, you know, I, until I was about 26, I did that. I mean, carried a gun, slept with a gun, all those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, just woke up and go, what am I doing with my life? I'm a single dad. I got two kids. This, this is not what I want to do with my life. So I was going to go back, finish my college degree. I had about a year and a half left. Mm -hmm. And I was going to go to law school. And thought, well, you know, I've been working in criminal justice. This is, you know, not going to go to law school. So just as I was about to quit, my sister called me. She said, I think you should go to work for this senior housing company. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And she said, okay, I just want you to go down to the library. I want you to read this study called The Grade of America. This is before computers. This is in 1985. And, um, you know, I just want you to see how big the aging boom is going to be. So I go down to my local library. You know, there's a study that's, I don't know, like hundreds of pages thick. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to sit here read this. Yeah, I start reading the first hundred pages. I'm like, man, this is huge. This is going to be a gigantic industry, the grade of America. So I come back and she goes, I'm on the advisory board of this company in Seattle. Why don't you just go interview with them? You don't have to take the job. And so I called them and I thought, well, I'm working in the prison system. They're not going to want a guy who's very, they're not very customer service friendly, right? And so I called them and I said, I thought to myself, they're going to give me an interview because my sister knows them. And so it's going to be a four-minute interview, right? Courtesy interview. Exactly. So, I, so they called and they said, hey, can you come in next week for the interview? And I said, hey, what if I come in in a month? And they said, well, that's kind of strange, but okay, if you want to come in in a month, that's fine. You can come in this day. So I go in in a month, and I'll, I'll tell you why I said a month. So I get there, 
we have this pleasantries. Oh, Linda's nice, and thank you for coming in. And you know, oh, you're working at prison. Oh, that's terrific. You know, and uh, the interview lasts about 12 months. I said, oh, well, thank you for coming in. And in my backpack next to me, I said, can I show you something? And I said, oh, sure. I pulled out this three ring binder, a manual. And I said, well, for the last month, I've been doing research on your company, your industry, your competitors, and every, everything else. Here it is. I want to I want to go through it with you because I think there's some things I can help you with. And they're like, "What?" <laughs> you know. So we spent the next hour going through that manual. Wow. And they're and they're like, uh, "Okay, we need to rethink this, and we'll call you tomorrow." So they called me and offered me a job the next of day. Of course, they would be crazy not to. That yeah. doesn't happen. Do you no. think that if if your sister hadn't made that call and hadn't encouraged you to go to the library, and you had gone to law school? What kind of lawyer were you going to be? Well, I think I probably in the beginning would have done a lot of social justice stuff, you know, because yeah. that's where my heart is. You yeah, know? your passion. I, I, yeah, I, I'd be doing a lot of stuff that you're seeing on the news right now. I mean, I I was just texting Van Jones on CNN this morning, thanking him for crying, you know, because yeah. he, he he broke down on CNN, you know, kind of so disheartened me at this thing. So I've, I have a relationship with him. So I was texting him, thanking him for showing that emotion, because I think we need emotion shown at this time. 100%. And 100%. so I think, I think I would probably do things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I would have continued to um, to do it. I, I've always had a passion for real estate. And I, I have a very creative side, so I love designing things. I love, you know, drawing plans and looking at how decor works. If you've ever been in one of my buildings, you, you'll see that. Yeah, right? I mean, your office is super cool. Everywhere you right. turn, there's a new um, inspiration for design. Yeah. Yeah, um, all really well thought out. And I think that's how architecture should be. It should be like living art, right? It shouldn't just be walls and doors and windows and stuff. You should walk in it and, and get some kind of inspiration or feeling. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it should invoke something. And that's, that's what I love about architecture is I can inspire a certain kind of feeling in you by how I think through this room. And, you know, that, that inspires So you may have gone in that. that direction, like either social justice or some sort of architecture, design, real estate, <laughs> development. Who knows? I could have been a, a fashion designer. Well, know? that's what's crazy in your background, Dwayne, is that, like, they don't make people like you. Like, you really are super... Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm super inspired. I, I mean, truly, you are such a renaissance man. You've got your, your involvement in everything, and it's not like you kind of halfway do it. You really do it. Like, you're a double-down guy. And yeah, I yeah, you know, you were asking about advice <clears throat> that I give to young people, my grandchildren, whatever. I think we're brought up to really be monolithic in terms of our career choices. And that really bugs me about society. Um, I, I think you can be a poet and an architect and a race car driver and a social justice person and a lawyer. You know, if you're really going to suck the richness out of life, you got to get beyond your comfort level. Like when I made my first documentary, people started laughing at me like, what do you know about making a documentary? I said, I know I'm passionate about it. And I know I'm going to read every book I can. I know I'm going to talk to everybody who's smart about it. I know I'm going to watch every good documentary I can. And then I'm going to find lots of good technical people. And then I'm yeah. going to do it. Yeah. That boldness uh, is incredible. I think it's amazing. So you got into this industry. And um, did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was when I was in my 20s. I just, you know, I wanted to have a career and I wanted to, I, I, I don't like to disappoint people. And I think that's an inherent trait in me. 
So I'm a really loyal friend. I'm a really good employee. I'm a really good boss because inherently I don't want to disappoint people. And that's hard, you know, because sometimes you have to disappoint people, right, to be a good CEO. But, you know, I worked for Leisure Care, which is a phenomenal company for seven years. I worked my way up from a manager in training to a vice president of the company, left there for a company called Sunrise. Um, it was a small company when I got there, went to over three and a half billion market cap. I took them public. I was the number two guy. I was the executive vice president there and then started Aegis in 97. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think after 12 years of working for other people in senior housing, I looked and said, I can do this. And I think yeah. I could do it even better than other people. Yeah. Um, and so I feel very fortunate to have worked for two great companies in senior housing, Sunrise and Leisure Care, because I took the best of both of them. And that's yeah. what ages is ages. And, you know, now we're the, the, the leading company in the, in the nation in senior housing. Well, every bit of it. I mean, obviously, you've gotten the recognition. You've gotten every single award out there. But you've also gone above and beyond. I've read about your employee meetings. I've read about uh, Dream Big Lottery. I mean, uh, walking through and seeing um, just all of the attention and care you give to each individual that works within the company. And as an extension of that, the way that they treat, um, you know, your residents. It's, there's no, it's no surprise. Yeah, there's a there's a direct correlation there. You know, I think so many people focus too much on the bottom line mm-hmm. and they don't focus enough on what's the path to the bottom line. And I've always said, you know, the the bottom line is really your employees. Because I can I can create a great business plan or I can create a big, great building or I can have great protocols or whatever. But it's that person that touches the customer every day. It's that exchange, you know, and great companies understand that. Nordstrom's, it really understands that, you know, Starbucks gets that. So you can't, unless I delight my employees, they can't delight the customer. Mm-hmm. They can bring the excitement that I give them to their job. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a hard job. That's a hard thing to do. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of is we were a top 50 glass door company. There's never been a healthcare company on the top 50 list for Glassdoor, 700,000 companies that are voted for. Yeah, that's a, that is a huge feat. Congratulations. That's yeah. Awesome. So yeah. how do you keep your finger on the pulse as far as what's happening in the day in and day out operations because you've gotten so big? And I know that you probably want that energy and that mentality to, to spill throughout, but it's impossible. You can't be everywhere. Well, I think it's very different now that I'm, I'm 61 and the company's as big as it is. Um, because there's so many things that I want to do, right? And and time is the rarest of commodities. So, you know, I, I want to spend time with my grandchildren. I want to work out. I, I want to write books. I want to do movies. So, you know, where I would spend 70 hours a week focusing on ages, you know, before, now I probably spend 30 hours a week focusing on ages. So I have a phenomenal president in Chris Ensko, who was the president of Starbucks North America. He's a great guy, 15 years younger than I am, a lot more energy than I have. And then we have a phenomenal senior leadership team. We have a great chief people officer in Sandra Prevail, a great chief um, marketing officer in Angie. We have a great head of uh, development in Walter. We just hired the, the uh, ex-VP of sales for Ritz-Carlton as our head of, uh, head of sales. So we have some great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just think that if you have a great team, you have to trust them. Yeah. And let them run. And then the other thing is you have to let them know what you are, um, 
what 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 you're concerned about, what you want to be kept a, a, in the loop about. You know? Yeah, what matters yeah. most. Yeah, yeah, and how to manage up. And so, um, I've read a little bit about your strategy and um, kind of mentality around recruiting. Obviously, you're going for the best of the best people. Um, how have you been thinking about that differently during this pandemic, if at all differently? Well, I think there's there's certainly going to be more people available during this pandemic. Um, we've gotten more, you know, we hire from the four and five star hotel industry. We've gotten more applications in the last eight weeks than I think we have in the last eight, eight years. So we're just inundated with applications. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 90% of our general managers come from the hotel industry. So they're calling their friends and said, hey, turn in an application. I think, um, I, I, I think it's no different. In fact, I would tell you, I think we need to do more for our staff. I mean, our, our culture is really incredible, but every week I tell our president, we have, to do, we have to be better. We have to get better. I mean, when this pandemic happened, um, we, we told people, um, hey, we know you don't want to go to the grocery store. You're going to be able to take home uh, meals for your entire family for a dollar a meal. Um, wow. We, we would have made them free, but there's a tax issue. So we said, okay, it's going to be a dollar a meal. So you don't have to go to the grocery store. If you get off shift, you want to take home, you know, and I'm talking, uh, you know, a five course meal, you know, for a dollar a person, you can't, and you don't have to expose yourself to going to the grocery store. That's incredible. Uh, we had a whole task force brainstorm around childcare solutions. We opened up telemedicine for people for free for their entire family. So if they, if they got, they suspected COVID or something, they could go right on telemedicine, talk to a doctor, be assessed, be regulated and so on. So they have, didn't have to go in. So, you know, all kinds of things that you have to do in this environment, and it pays off. You know, we haven't had any shortage of staff. We haven't had mm -hmm. people that have no-showed. You yeah. know, our industry is plagued with that. Yeah, walk me back, because when we spoke on the phone earlier this week, you were saying that you guys got, um, you know, hit with COVID. And it was found first in Kirkland at, at a... Um, Redmond, a yeah. Or was that yeah. Redmond, I guess? yeah. Our, our Marymore property, our patient zero came to work ill on February 28th. Now, everybody's going, oh, God, why didn't you do this? Well, the mentality on February 28th. It was like it's the flu. Yeah. Well, the first death, just to, just to put everybody in sync here, the first death was reported on February 28th, the number one death in the United States. So our guy came to, to work ill on February 28th. His wife called in and said, oh, we thought he had the flu. We found out eight days later they had COVID. Um, eight days, so for eight days, COVID was run loose in our building. Um, and we managed it very well. The day, the hour we found out, we locked down the building, we locked down the entire state, all our buildings. We put PPE in place. You know, we had PPE because we suffer from flu viruses and so on. And we immediately created a task force among senior managers that be process owners for research, medical advice, PPE, you know, disinfection procedures. We contacted everybody from the Gates Foundation to the Institute of Disease Modeling, to Fred Hutch, to UW, to various universities outside the state. And, um, and but, you know, we ended up with, with 19 residents that got it, some that passed away, um, and eight staff that got it. Now, what I'm very proud to say is, you know, we service about 2,400 residents. Since that, since that initial outbreak, we've only had about 18 or 19 residents in the whole company that have gotten it. That's, that's an incredible statistic. Well, because, especially given the demographic, for sure. Right. 
that's an incredible statistic because normally about about five to ten percent of senior housing are getting it. We're we're about point three. Wow. So, and so how is your communication to the families? That would be the biggest thing that would yeah. be like stressing me out if I was in your position. Like eek, how do I I think make we everybody feel comfortable? Job. I mean we were giving people daily communication. They were saying that's too much. We update our website. We give blast to them. Um, we do uh, kind of certain communiques that we updated on research and so on. Mm-hmm. Our families have loved this. You know, some people are saying, I'm pulling my mom out of senior housing. We think we're going to be one of the safest places on the planet to be. I'm not even in senior housing, but anywhere because of the, the things that we've done. You know, and a lot of companies didn't have PP&E. I mean, because we got it so early, the first of March, I mean, we just said, I don't care what it costs. You go out and get enough PP. We have enough PP in E on on board today for six months. No one has that kind of stock. No one has that kind of supply. And you know now it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get us there. Mm-hmm. But it's irrelevant if it's going to save one life. How did you go about getting that? We have relationships with people, vendors, and so on. There's a great YPO friend of ours that runs the greatest latex glove company in the in the world. Um, you know, Amex. Um, we have relationships with vendors who have got us masked. And then we sourced other vendors. But mm-hmm. the key is we did it early. So where everybody else was like the end of March, the 1st of April, oh, I don't have PP&E. We, we looked at this. And again, we had a stockpile already because we get norovirus and flus in the building. And so we had some there. And so, but I, I'm so proud of my staff because now we've become the leaders in finding this in senior housing. I, I'm doing one to two webinars a week. I just did one for 4,000 people to Marcus and Millichap last week about what we've done. We formed this virus council that is educating us, people from the Fred Hutch, people from the Institute of Disease Modeling, people that are working on vaccines, um, geriatric psychologists, geri- uh, dementia specialists. These, there's eight doctors, um, Chinese doctors, people that are uh, naturopaths that are all giving us advice on what we do, can do, when the vaccine is going to be ready, what kind of nutrition we should do. Because this is a disease, this is an immune disease, right? Yeah. And that's what most people don't know, is that when you get the disease, it's inflammatory based, right? And there's two things to worry about. One is, what is your virus load? And virus load is how much you're inoculated with. So, you know, we think of inoculation like the flu, and we go and get this little shot. Well, COVID-19 is no different. If you get a massive inoculation, a massive dose of this, where you have a person that sneezes in your face and they don't have a mask on and you don't have a mask on, and they're at the peak of the virus, that's a massive inoculation. So that's, that's the one factor, how much of a viral dose you get, how much you're inoculated. If you go touch a handrail that someone's touched two days later, the virus, you may get the virus, but it may be a lesser inoculation, right? Mm-hmm. And so viral dose is a critical component of this. The second component is your inflammatory response, right? So if you have diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, if you have COPD, if you have cancer, if you have asthma, those are all inflammatory-based diseases, even dementia. And so what happens when you get COVID is that it elevates your inflammation to the point your body has nowhere to go, okay? So if you already have hypertension, that, you know, 80-some 80, 80 of the people who passed away at the ages at Marymore um, uh, had, had hypertension. And it was controlled hypertension. It wasn't out of control hypertension. But they, they had vascular compromise over the year. 
And now there was just a report released this week that we think, you know, we, we thought COVID was a, a respiratory disease. Now they think it's a vascular disease, which makes sense why now it's affecting people that, you know, have high blood pressure and diabetes and so on, because those diseases affect our vascular system as well. So the question then for your listeners is, so if I, if I want to not die from this or not get really sick, what do I do? Well, if you have comorbidities, like the ones I mentioned, diabetes, high blood pressure, whatever, you have to do the best job you can to reduce the inflammation in your body. How do we do that? Well, it's the same things your doctor's been telling you for 10 years. Eat right, diet, exercise, you know, those kinds of things. But additionally, there's eight clinical trials going on right now that are really fascinating around vitamin D. And vitamin D does two things for you. It, it helps increase your immune system so you're stronger, your body's stronger. But the other thing it does is it prevents your body from going into this autoimmune reaction. You know, when you, I, I get allergies, right? You start sneezing, mm -hmm. your eyes get watery and so on. That's an autoimmune reaction. Your body's overreacting to this stimulus, that, you know, whatever is making you sneeze that's coming into your body. Well, when you get infected with COVID, you have an autoimmune response and your body actually turns against itself. It starts to destroy tissue and cells and so on. Because of that, what vitamin D does is prevents an autoimmune response. So the more vitamin D you take, and most doctors recommend your levels be, you know, above 40. If, you know, if you're 30 or less. I got my numbers, by the way, at, uh, 42. Yeah. And my doctor said, just perfect. And I was going to be like, but my friend Dwayne said. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, I, I'm, it was 42 I'm not, is my, from 2019. But I, I upped it since we spoke. I'm, I'm going to double down on that. I'm not a doctor and I'm not a physician and I would advise everyone listening to me to say, well, I'm going to go check with my doctor. Yeah, for most, sure. Most doctors will say, if you're above 35, you're okay. When, because of this COVID thing, you know, the doctors I talk to say, hey, we'd like you to be above 60. So uh, mine was, mine in February was 56. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm taking five to 10,000 I use a day. Um, I'm taking 10,000 right now. And I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. There, and again, consult your physician, but there's great mm -hmm. studies around this. And that's why people of color are dying so significantly higher than people that are not, that are Caucasian. So yeah. African-Americans, Latinos, substantially. And everybody thought it was a social economic decision. Well, they're dying because they're on the front lines. They have the jobs that are most exposed. The studies have been done that actually extract the social economic uh, things. And it's, uh, you know, it's coming up true. There's a great podcast by Joe Rogan that he interviews a doctor on this. And uh, she does a beautiful job, much better than I have uh, explained. I'm going to listen to it. And then you also said zinc. And what does zinc do? Zinc, zinc has a similar property in that it's antiviral. Mm. And so it combats the viral. I, I had a, a friend in a Hong Kong hospital for 31 days that had, that had COVID. And they were giving her massive doses of vitamin D and doses of zinc while she was while she was there to actually kill the virus. And then, you know, there's natural paths that tell you to there's all kinds of foods you should be eating that are high antiviral. Garlic's high antiviral. Onions are antiviral. I, I I can't say that that's you know peer reviewed and double blind studied and everything else. I, I think there's some basis to it, and if it's not going to hurt you. I think that's the rule of thumb. It's not going to hurt you. You know, the best yeah. thing you can do is is get your body in shape. So if you get it, 
And and again, viral dosing, that's why masks are so I have important. asthma. I heard you say asthma. And in the beginning, I was super scared. And then I was like, well, then I had heard that if you have asthma, you're actually in better shape because your body's used to feeling like it can't breathe or something. I don't even know. But I don't know what to read, frankly, Dwayne. Like, I don't know what you read or how you ingest or consume news or information. Yeah. But that's half the battle on this thing. Yeah. No, it's difficult. You're right. I think you know, I, I'm fortunate that I have a group of, you know, probably two dozen physicians that mm -hmm. send me articles daily. I, I read about three hours a day on wow. the first thing in the morning from six to nine, nine thirty, three to four hours a day. I'm reading um, articles, white papers, scientific research, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, you know, it's not like I'm talking, you know, going to TMZ and seeing yeah. what, you know, what, oh, yeah. what this yeah. is, this is off topic, but I'm actually just more personally curious. Do you tend to multitask or do one thing at a time? Cause I was saying to uh, actually spoke with Joe Ottinger this morning. Um, and I was telling him, I was interviewing you. I'm like, there's one thing that I noticed about Dwayne is that he's the most busy guy, but you feel very present. Yeah. Like when I talk to you, I don't feel like I'm like, oh, I better get him off the phone. He's got 17 other people trying to physically, although I know that that's what's really happening. Well, here's the thing I will tell you about that. Um, I hate people that waste my time. Okay. And I don't mean that in an arrogant or rude thing. Right. Um, I, I, I hate wasting time because it's the only thing in the world you can't really buy or get back. Right. And so I'm very careful about people that waste time of mine. And you talk to my staff about this. They, they know this is a hot issue. I keep my office at 62 degrees. I, I have two chairs in front of my desk that usually have stacks of books or clothes or something in them, right? So when they come in and they just want to pop in, they, and I know this sounds very hierarchical, but they usually stand and talk to me for about three or four minutes, get what they have to say off their mind, they leave. Now, if we book a meeting, that's different, right? We're going to sit down for an hour. Mm -hmm. But there's so many what I call door jam meetings that go For on sure. where you're just like, Hey, what'd you think of that movie last night? You know, da, 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 da. and I don't want to seem like I'm antisocial because there's a place to do that. But if I'm, I'm man, if I'm working on something, I don't want to have those conversations. Yeah. So number one, I think you have to be very protective of your time. Yeah. And then, and then you have to think about how you can do things in the shortest amount of time. I have a really hard time not doing two things at once. And sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure if this is the smartest way of living. Yeah. I, I just, there's no right or wrong answer to that. I think it's a matter of really what you want to accomplish in life. I, I have a lot that I want to do in a few mm -hmm. years that I have left yeah. on this planet. You've got a and lot so, more. I'm convinced of it. Is there, is there, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm trying to be mindful specifically of your time. I, I, I'm good for another 30 minutes. Okay. Just so you know. All right, good. So when you are thinking about like having a meeting, you said, except for meetings, is there a Dwayne ready? I, th I think people anticipate my questions and the way I'll look at stuff. And I think people who've worked with me a long time will say, oh, well, that will never apply, or he's not going to be receptive to that. And this is the way you get your point across. I don't think from a meeting format, it has to go like A, B, C, D. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a rigid guy. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just like being very efficient. And here, here's the thing I will say about that. That doesn't mean that I get up and work for 18 hours a day. I'm very cautious that, hey, I have to meditate 22 minutes a day. I have to fit that in my space. I'm very cautious that I want to spend an hour with my wife in the morning. I'm very cautious that I have to, you know, I want to carve out an hour and a half to two hours to work out. Um, I'm very cautious that I want to call my kids or my grandkids during the day. So you have to set your, your, your priorities 
So then you can say, I really don't need to be on that group distribution email that just took me four minutes to read. And you know, here's the deal, and I, here's, a, here's a challenge for your listeners. Wake up in the morning and keep a journal for just one day. And every time you go, that was a waste of time, write down how long that took. Okay? Now, I've, I've done this with like 20 times with people. And, you know, oh, I just read that email. I didn't even need to read that email. Oh, I just took that phone call. I spent eight minutes with that idiot. I didn't need to take that call. <clears throat> what know, about social I, media? Does that come up? <clears throat> sure. Whatever I mean, that's it is. a time suck. Talk about a yeah. time suck. But just keep your journal. And every time you have that, just make a little notation. Say, yeah, I spent eight minutes on this. And at the end of the day, add it up. At the end of the day, add it up and look and say, holy crap, I spent three hours and 43 minutes doing things that I hated. I really yeah. didn't like. And then how can I take that number and put it in things I love? And this, this to me, this is the secret of life, right? Because if you can take that time, that three hours and 43 minutes and reconstitute it, recycle it into something you're passionate about, something you love, something you thrive on, you know, something that fuels you, um, then you can then say, oh, God, that was a great day, right? Yeah. I love that day. But yeah. what we, we choose to make the wrong decision about how we spend time. Yeah. Where would you um, spend your day if you could pre-COVID on like the perfect Saturday? Probably on my boat with my kids on the water. On the water. Yeah. Yeah. I love the water. It, it just, it just, it just has a calming effect and washes I com over. Me. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's your and happy I, place. And I, w I would probably wouldn't even talk much. I just sit there on the bow and, you know, look out and just absorb the scenery and, and recharge, refuel. What about travel? Is there anywhere in the world that is on your bucket list that you, I know you don't believe in the bucket list, but I guess it's on your list of places to visit that you well, we had We had an incredible year planned this year. Um, and I just, I'm so, so sad. First of all, the Vatican was going to baptize eight of my grandchildren. So we had a car cardinal baptizing eight of my grandchildren in the Vatican. Oh my gosh. So, so I, I, I sit on a foundation, the Pope's, the Pope's, private foundation so we have a we have a lot of insight into the vatican and so that was that took a lot to set up and then that got canceled um we were going to go to the formula one race in monaco and uh the ambassador had invited us to come spend time there and um that got canceled um we were taking uh all my grandchildren my nine grandchildren my son and daughter and their spouses and t and i we're going to, we run into houses in the south of France. And we were wow. going to spend a week there. So, I mean, I love Europe. Um, I have this, you know, since COVID, it's funny. I, I grew up on a ranch. I have this hankering to buy a ranch. And, and Do it. It's, it's, it's COVID driven because I think. Survival, like you're going to need to have access. Well, you know, it's funny because I've been monitoring this. I'm a huge real estate guy, so I have all these indexes that look at stuff. But I think land, lots of land is going to be a big commodity, right? And when you have something like this, you just go to your little happy place and you just hunker down and it's self-sufficient. You have your garden and you maybe have a few cattle and, you know, you have meat in the freezer. And you say, hey, I could stay here for a year. You know, I got my generator. I don't need anything else. I'm off the grid. And, you know, I was uh, talking to someone that knows uh, – um, Kanye West, and he's got this big place in Wyoming. He was telling me about it, 
And, you know, I think this is going to become more common. I, I think you'll hear a lot more about this. So I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all. Yeah. Um, I've talked to a few friends who have talked about having like a panic safe room. Yeah. And yeah. This, the kinds of conversations that are happening lately around COVID and then couple that with what's happening lately with racism and riots and the president. And it's just part of me thinks in a spiritual way that it's kind of long overdue in a weird way. Like hopefully certain things that I personally have gotten from this time and especially even just conversations I've had with black friends over the last week, I feel like I'm um, more, more present and more attuned than ever before. Um, and I thought I was before, but I just think pre, um, pre the riots and pre all of this stuff happening with COVID, I was saying, this is kind of nice to slow down. Like I'm such an extrovert and so busy all the time. And I never really gave myself the option to not be. And I'm like, this is maybe a new way. And I like this old school kind of, we're just sitting around the table. We're with our family a lot more. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can hold on to that. Well, I think that's a very good question to ask people because the, the COVID classroom has been such an incredible teacher for me. And as painful as it's been not to be able to hug my grandchildren and things like that, if you look at the benefit, I mean, LA, you, you can see for miles, the pollution's gone. You go to Venice, the, the waters have never been so blue and clear. There's, there's fish, you know, right going up to the hotels in Venice. I mean, you, you look at Shanghai and Hong Kong. I mean, the pollution's gone. Um, you've never seen, I mean, the Yellowstone Park has bears that are wandering into town, you know? I mean, it's so, so different. But beyond the environmental benefits that we're getting, I just think the lessons of, you know, being kind and not being, I mean, I've done a lot of evaluation in my life in terms of consumer consumerism and do I need this? And is this noise in my life or is it pleasure in my life? Did I, did I do that just to, you know, show off or to compete or to be flashy or whatever? So, you know, it's helped me in, in, a, in a lot of ways kind of reflect on, who I want to be in the world, how I want to walk in and the what world. And what have you gotten? Because I don't think of you, even though you've got a lot of things and you've consumed a lot of things, you also, A, give back. You're extremely philanthropic. And you're also very um, approachable. You don't talk down to people. But you like nice things. And sometimes I think it's it can be like more money, more problems. You know, like just yeah. more stuff can be like more noise. Um, and I've also been around a lot of people with money that become really unhappy by it, like almost kind of tethered by it. Um, I, I think what it does for me is I realize I have to do more for those who have less. And I don't mean necessarily less wealth. I mean, you know, less opportunities. I mean, the, the whole, um, I was saying before we started the podcast that in 2017, September 2017, I actually led a march on Washington, D.C. called Restore Civility. It's, it's all over YouTube and C-SPAN if you want to Google it. In September of 2013, I was the co-chair of this movement called Restore Civility with Ken Nawadiki, who's the free hugs guy. If you see the guy on CNN. Yes, has, love that guy. Yeah, so Kenny's a good friend of mine. We've been talking every day this week. He's in Minneapolis right now trying to quell the, the disturbances there. And we led this march to restore civility because things were getting out of hand, much like today, not even at the scale they are today. And so I spoke from the same place where Martin Luther King gave us, I have a dream speech. I brought 100 ages staff with me that marched. It was 104 degrees that day. I remember it vividly. And we had well over 1,000 people that showed up. CNN, or excuse me, uh, C-SPAN covered it for, for eight hours live. And we had the founder of the Black Panthers there. We had a very diverse crowd. 
And so um, I think I have to do more for those who have less. And I have to, you know, I have to sensitize myself in terms of, you know, it, it is my lifestyle hurting anyone? Is it offending anyone? Is it, you know, or can I use it to motivate people? I, I, I mentor, I have a foundation called D1, which is all kids of color that I mentor. They're all athletes. And, um, you know, I've talked to them a lot this week because they're scared, you know, they're, oh, they're really yeah. scared. And, and so just giving that wisdom and that assurance, you know, that, that, that constant motivation to them and tell them, hey, you're our future. You can get through this. I'll help you. When you say giving, um, giving back, it's, it is money. Obviously, it's support in that way. It's NAACP. It's all of it. But it's also hope and opportunity. Yeah. Like you said, it's really the opportunity because that's that pride in um, being self-sustainable and kind of accomplishing things builds on itself. This goes back to the time conversation we just had about, well, if you find out that you got three hours extra in the day, why not, why not spend an hour of that, that, day, that time that you just got back reconstituting to give to one of those kids, to give to that charity, to give time to that group. Just, just you know, don't be sloppy with your time because that's, Giving you, that's more important than writing the check. I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's easy to write a check and just hand it off and say, I don't really care to go to that event or see them or whatever. But spending time with these people, looking them face-to-face, -face, hearing their struggles, hearing what they need from you, hearing encouragement, that's incredibly powerful. And it's a mark that you'll make in their life that they'll never forget. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you've touched so many people. Um, I know that in the little time we've spent together, you've touched me. Even on this call, I've written down a couple of things that are like to-dos for me. I love the idea that you just said. It really resonated for me of just writing down how you're spending time and thinking because sometimes you do get scared and I tend to say yes to things. And lately, I've in the past year, I've been like, Shauna, be disciplined and say no and kind of break it down to family and, and your work and giving back just a little bit. You can't do it all. But I actually do have more capacity. Yeah, and and you'll you'll find there's a lot of time thieves all around you. There's yeah. there's pe there's people trying to steal your time every second of the day, and that's yeah. where you, you have to be you have to be very guarded about that. Yeah, well, that's hard to do when you're someone like you or like me that's trying to not disappoint people. Yeah, that's, that's a skill that's learned, right? How to say no delicately and yeah, yeah, not offend. Yeah, I, th I think you can do it, and I think you know one of the things that I end up doing is say. I'm not going to do that, but let me tell you what, how I am going to spend that hour, and hopefully you'll respect this. Oh, I like that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go to that dinner, but I am going to do, you know, I am going to go down to the, you know, to the Boys and Girls Club, and I am going to spend time with them, so this is why I can't do it. Yeah. And then people go, oh, well, that's, you know. That's people, even better. People, They're like, can people, I come? People don't get mad at you then, no, right? Of course, of course, yeah. They can't like fault that. you for doing good. Yeah, I like that. When we were speaking on the phone earlier this week, you said that coming back to COVID, that during this time, your brother got sick and ultimately passed away. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. that. You're the first one I've spoken to who's lost a family member. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really horrible. My, my brother uh, went, my brother was 12 years older than me, he was 73. And he went into a nursing home to, to rehab some things. And um, in March, he started to get sick. And again, this is early COVID, right? And then he went into the hospital, I think it was about the 20, 21st of March. And, uh, and they said, it looks like he has pneumonia, right? Well, what is pneumonia? It looks like COVID, right? 
and this was in, in, in the Coeur d'Alene area. And, um, and then on April 1st, he passed away. And you couldn't see him. You couldn't go see him. You, we, there was no funeral. We had to petition the county health department to actually get him a priest to give him last rites. He was very religious. And there was no funeral. You know, he's, he's buried by himself. You can't, he couldn't go. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just, just heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Did he have family? Uh, oh, yeah. He had, a, he had a wife and a daughter and, you know, they couldn't see him. And so the, the challenge, you know, the challenge is, you know, first of all, it's horrific for the person because they're scared, terrified, right. right? And there's no comfort there. But beyond that, there's no closure for the people that love those people. There's no, you know, a, a funeral is an honoring, but it's also closure. It's totally. It, it's a way for people to say, oh, I'm going to pay for my respects. I'm going to honor this person's life. And, you know, now it's like people just evaporate. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, they get hit with a laser beam and they're gone. And you're like, what, what happened? They were here yesterday, you know? And it's, I, I don't know how we're going to resolve this as a society. I, I think maybe there'll be mass memorials and, you know, whatever. But it's going to be something that affects us as, as a human race. And as a society, I mean, you know, we've lost a, what, 107,000 people now just in the United States. Um, it's it's going to affect us for a long time. How are you balancing that part of your mind that's feeling the pain and feeling like, I personally have gone through this and I know what it feels like to lose someone close to you to COVID and also this need to kind of get the economy going again? Like, what's your take on kind of this phase one, phase two, where we should be? Yeah. And first of all, I should clarify, they never diagnosed my brother with COVID. They said he had pneumonia. He, he could have had COVID, so we don't know. I, I think I am very cautious. Um, I'm very, very cautious about, um, I, I'm telling people I'm not meeting anyone in the next six months indoors. And people are like, what? What are you talking about? Even if you have a mask? I don't know. I'm not. And, you know, I kind of feel like the second year med school student where, you know, you started studying diseases and you know too much, right? You know too much about the disease and you think, I got that disease. That's me. I got it, you know. But, you know, for a guy that spent probably four hours a day studying and researching COVID, I just know that, it, you know, if somebody comes in a room and they have COVID and they sneeze and then they walk out of the room and then you enter that room 10 minutes later and no one's there, the droplets are probably still going to exist, right? And you could you could get COVID. So I'm just not going to do it. Now I'll meet people outside, you know, eight feet apart with a mask on, and you know we'll have a great time. Uh, but you know people don't understand the idiosyncrasies of the disease, like the aerosol effect. And the aerosol effect, people think, well, what is that? Well, if you've got COVID and you sneeze, if you cough, if you sing, if you shout. You know, all those things will project droplets even further than six feet. Six feet is a randomized number. I've talked to scientists all day long about this. You know, you have to do everything you can to prevent this. And that, you know, I, I have CNN on in front of me, and you're, we're seeing thousands and thousands of people marching, and probably 50% of them have masks on. You know, just in the last five days, California has seen an 11% spike in COVID cases. Well, that's not a coincidence that you're having all these marches and you've seen an 11% spike in COVID cases. You're probably going to see a 20% spike in it. So this disease is not going away. Summer is not going to make it go away. If summer made it go away, they wouldn't have one of the highest incidents of COVID in Brazil. The heat does not make it go away. The only thing summer does is we're outside more. 
So you're not in poorly ventilated places during the summertime. And you know, it's, it's gonna come back probably stronger than ever this, this fall, probably starting in November. In fact, Aegis, along with Fred Hutch, is doing a virus tracking study to track it from November on and seeing how the, how the virus moves from place to place, person to person, mm-hmm. and so on. Wow. So, you know, you just got to be educated. You and what are the experts yourself. saying as far as a vaccine? Well, he, here, here's the thing about a vaccine, because I, I get really frustrated with this. Everybody said, well, we think a vaccine is going to be done by September. Well, let's, let's play fairy dust dreaming here. Let's say a vaccine is done tomorrow. It's done tomorrow. Okay, you have 328 million people you have to vaccinate. Do you know how long it would make to make syringes and needles for 328 million people? First of all, you have to make 500 million because some will break or be defective. It will take approximately 18 to 20 months to make those needles and syringes. There's not, there's not 500 million syringes laying around in someone's backyard, right? So it's not only about the vaccine. Now, here's the thing about a vaccine. It's not going to be one vaccine because one vaccine is not going to work for everyone. And elderly's um, immune systems are suppressed. So if you, if you invent an antigen-based vaccine, you know, the word antigen means you're generating antibodies. You have to have an p- appropriate immune system to do that. So to get an elderly person to do that, you have to give them an, an adjuvant, which is a booster, mm-hmm. to accept that. So you may have, a, have an ac- a vaccine that has an adjuvant component to it that's compatible. So there may be two or three or four vaccines. You know, Fauci came on and said, you know, by the first of 20. 21, we should have 200 million vaccines. Terrific. That doesn't mean in February everyone's going to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've talked to you know every major institution, health organization, Gates Foundation, Fred Hutch. How do you vaccinate people two or 328 million people on Tuesday? You know, it's not like the, everybody lines up and say, oh, okay, we're going to do it. This is a major thing. Now, that's that's part of the obstacle. Then you got 85 million visitors to the United States a year. 85 million. So how do you vaccinate the person coming in from Botswana and make sure they're okay and so on? So this is a complicated issue. And I don't think people are, I don't think we're going to be through this for 18 to 24 months. And when I say through it, I mean, to the point that people feel feel comfortable, they've been vaccinated, you know, either by a vaccine or one of the things that's very promising is what's called convalescent plasma where you're extracting someone who's, who's recovered from COVID over a course of uh, probably 20 to 30 days, and then you extract blood from them, spin it, and actually get the antibodies at it and inject it into someone who has COVID. That has been very effective. The problem is it's not scalable, you know? Because mm-hmm. not enough people not have enough people, it. yeah. They haven't had it. So when you say I'm not going inside for six months, I mean, I guess the big question is a lot of friends, because we've been pretty conservative and a lot of our friends are like, well, so what exactly are you waiting for? Like a vaccine? You're going to be inside yeah. for 18 months? Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you what I'm waiting for, because I have a very thought out, well thought out. I'm waiting oh, for, the, for the strain to die down, because there's a possibility that the, the actually potency of the strain could die down. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for a vaccine. I'm waiting for convalescent plasma. I'm waiting to see if people get antibody tested so they're not um, super spreaders. I'm waiting to, for more accurate testing so that we know on an ongoing best basis whether people 
you know, you, we, we may get to a point where we have to test people once a week. So then you say, oh, yeah, I was just tested yesterday. I mean, we're, we're, we're coming home. Uh, we're in California right now. We're coming home next Wednesday. And we're saying, okay, on Monday, everybody that works in our house is getting tested. So by Tuesday, we'll know everyone that has contact with us. And there'll be a 24-day, 24-hour lapse if, if they have COVID or not. We'll be doing that on an ongoing basis, right? So that's what I wait for. And it's about minimizing risk. Um, if, if, if I go into a building, I'm wearing a mask. I may double mask, you know, because they say an N95 is 96% proof. A cloth mask is 65% proof, you know. So, you know, you're, you're just going to minimize risk. And then once you know the risk, you can then know how to manage the risk. Wow, it's so overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. really overwhelming. You seem really positive in a good mood, meaning like it doesn't seem to have gotten you down at all. Have you had any really down? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, we all get down. You think, oh, God, I'm going to get it and die. You know, and then, I mean, my daughter's like, Dad, is your, is your will updated? You know, and they're like, well, just, what are you asking me about my will for, you know? She's like, well, it's a reasonable question. You it's know? a reason. It is a reasonable question. It's an unfortunate <laughs> yeah. question, but it should be it's one to be talked about regardless of COVID. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I love how educated you are on this. Wow. We, we will all get through it. We will all get through it together, but you got to be vigilant. You can't be running around in a crowd of thousand people without a mask. That's, yeah, for sure. That, that's suicidal. Um, and, and I mean, if you want to go out and protest in March, God bless you. I, I'm, I'd be right there with you. You know, wear gloves, wear a mask, protect yourself. Don't be sharing water bottles with other people, you know, all those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. So totally very agree. important. Yeah. Well, Dwayne, um, I'm going to let you go. But my final question that I ask everyone on the podcast is what fuels you? What's your ultimate fuel? Oh, God. You know, I, I don't think my answer is that much different than everyone else, especially in COVID times. You know, you, you, you want you want your family to be happy. You want them to be healthy. Um, you want to make sure that your time on this planet was, was spent well, you know, that you, you made a contribution. Uh, you know, I think that you left the planet better than when you entered it. And I think if you can do that, if you can say, Hey, I made contribution, I I'm leaving this planet better than when I entered it. That's all we can all ask for. Yeah. Well, you're doing it and I'm so inspired. I'm going to make you come back on. Stay safe. All right. Stay so safe. Say hi to the family. I will. And um, hope you get your shower soon. <laughs> Thanks, Shara. <laughs> I'll talk Take to you care. later. Okay, bye, bye. bye. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.